0: Father, to you belong all glory and honor and praise, both now and forever, and so I pray that you would inform us, um, even though you don't need to, Lord, would you be gracious and merciful to inform us of why that is, to show us and reveal to us your majesty and your glory, your kindness and your goodness, your lordship over all things. Lord, we have failed you, at times made shipwreck of our faith, but you assure us that you are gracious and kind to forgive, and that in Jesus you've laid our iniquity on him. And so we thank you. We ask for that cleansing. We ask that you create in us a clean heart. We ask that you Make us a people that are worthy. Make us to walk in a manner worthy. Help us, Lord, to see through your word that we are to trust you to complete the work that you began in us. Therefore, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, everybody has kind of their realm of influence and authority. There are, oh, for instance, this being Super Bowl Sunday, there's a commissioner of the whole NFL. There's a commissioner of the whole NBA, although nobody cares about that anymore. There are um, governors of each respective state. There are superintendents of school districts and principals. Uh, Maybe at your job, you hold the title of manager Or something. In other words, we all have these areas in which we are given some sort of authority to exercise order. And um, with Jesus, it's a little different because there is not one area that he exercises authority over. It is all areas of life and all people in all areas of life. There is no rogue molecule or person or spirit or star in all of the universe that is not governed under the sovereign authority of the Lord our God. And I'll continue to remind you and reiterate the fact that that Matthew is showing us, has revealed to us up to this point who Jesus is and what that means as he lives Here on earth as a man. And so, chapters 8 and 9 are uncovering all the realms and spheres of of life and existence across the universe and the spiritual realm in which Jesus has authority over. And so, we've already seen him display his authority over disease, uh, display authority over his disciples, display authority over nature. And now, as he reaches the other side of the sea, we encounter a display of His authority over the demonic or the spiritual realm. Which alerts us to the fact or answers for us the question that the disciples uh, marveled in saying in verse 27 of chapter 8, what sort of man is this? And they were marveling because of how He displayed power and dominion over the created order, and now we're going to see Him display power over even those demons that oppose Him. And so what are we to gather from all this, from what Matthew is showing us here? Uh, It's simple. We are to gather that He is Lord, period. The context of these chapters is that Jesus is Lord. That's what you're supposed to see from that. And we're going to see how the rest of Scripture speaks to that In this particular context. And the right recognition of Jesus. Is that he is Lord. That even the demons. Rightly recognize. Or it could even be said that they have a right theology. Of who Jesus is. Of who God is. And it also needs to be said. That we do not make him Lord of anything. That that is to Really, uh, water down his lordship. He is Lord, period. He just is. It, it, it's kind of the context of what he's saying to Moses in Exodus three fourteen. In the out of that burning bush, he says, "I am who I am." He he doesn't have one sphere of influence or lordship. He is Lord. There is. One Lord, and it's Him. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. And when He came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met Him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? In all three synoptic Gospels, and I'm going to use that term synoptic here, and that just means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excluding John, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, collaborate, uh, collaborate a lot of their stories, they have a lot of the same content in those Gospels, and so a lot of the things you see in them are synonymous, and so people refer to those three out of the four Gospels as the synoptic Gospels. So going forward, when I say synoptic Gospels, we're thinking Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all record that as soon as Jesus stepped out of the boat in this scene, the man, or in Luke and Mark, the men, uh, the demons, react dramatically and out of terror. Matthew records two, Mark and Luke record one, and that's not a contradiction. That is simply to say that Mark and Luke are focusing on the one prominent demon-possessed man. And Matthew is giving us a little more detail and saying there was two uh, that came out. But, but we see that he's only usually speaking to one of them here. But the reaction here is what is most important is that they react to Jesus out of terror, Before a word is spoken from Jesus himself, before he even makes his way toward them, they come to him out of terror and trembling. And we're even told in Luke or Mark or maybe both of those that they fall down before him. That there is a a reverence or a recognition, a, a terror that they understand when they see him. Now, granted, they've never met Jesus as He's taken on humanity. They've known Jesus at the right hand of the Father as part of the Trinity, as the Son of the Most High. But somehow, in this spiritual context, they recognize that the presence of God is near them, and they're terrified. These men, these demons, exist inhabiting these men to instill terror in others. We're told in Mark and Luke that they're naked. They're breaking chains. I mean, can you imagine the type of crazy power that exists to be able to break a chain? Uh, They live among the dead, which is a very unclean place to live. Uh, They're cutting themselves with stones and rocks. They're screaming. I mean, the, the, the scene of people that would have passed by would have been horrifying, horrifying to see this. And nobody could subdue them. Nobody could control them. If we saw these men today, they'd probably be placed on medication. But back then, it was, you know, they they understood that these spiritual things are possible and they happen. And this is what was the result of it. And Jesus elicits such a response from them that it it is to their horror. These, These... grotesque, amazingly terrifying individuals, what they are instilling in others is now instilled in them to probably a degree that you and I can't understand. Which reveals some things to us. That even in the demonic realm, they recognize the authority of God in Jesus. In all of the synoptic accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the demons beg for Jesus not to torment them, or quite literally, to cause them unbearable pain and agony. Why? Because they know that He can. James tells us in verse 19 of chapter 2 you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So, in other words, they have a theology of God and His authority. That sometimes even we don't hold. They understand what is coming for them and from who. They know the result of their rebellion even more than human sinners understand. And they have a fear of God that is probably unrivaled. They They, they absolutely cower in fear when they see Him, when His presence steps into the same atmosphere as theirs. I'm excited when I hear that because He is my Lord, and He reigns supreme over all these things that in our humanity kind of scare us and intimidate us, right? But... My Lord, the one who cares and loves me is the most terrifying person in all the universe. And that is the right fear of God that we should have. That there is no one who holds such power. There is no one who holds such holiness. There is no one who exercises such great authority. There is no one more powerful than God and that everybody in the universe at one point in time will recognize that and right now Satan and his demons recognize that not only that they understand what that means for them and it terrifies them Jude 6 tells us about some of these angels. It says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. They know that. They know what is their end. That's why they say, have you come here to torment us before the time? (laughs) They know absolutely what's coming to them. Jude 6, plus what I'm going to show you in 2 Peter 2, 4, could also be referring to the grievous sin of fallen angels in Genesis 6, where the sons of God found the daughters of men to be attractive, right? And then they went into the daughters of men, and they had these men of old, these men of renown, the Nephilim. So if you interpret those sons of God in Genesis 6 as fallen angels, this could be referring to what he did exactly With those angels. But however you interpret that, in either case, what is not repentant? They've been assigned, they've been condemned. Uh, They already know their end and it is so terrifying and awful to them that they want it delayed as long as possible. But they also recognize that even though Jesus is here and it somewhat confuses them because they think the time is yet to come for their actual eternal torment, they know that he has the authority to decide whenever that time is at any time. So they, they, they exist under his lordship. Jesus represents terror, torment, and judgment to them. 2 Peter 2.4 says the same as Jude 6, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. We're, we, we, are, we are understanding that the Bible is telling us that, that hell and judgment is not a, a place of dominion for Satan and his angels. This judgment created by God where he exists in... That's the most terrifying thing about hell. That's the most terrible thing about the judgment is that the wrath of God is is there. It's not them. But for them, as it should be for all creation, they cannot deny his deity nor his authority. In uh, Mark, I believe, they refer to him as the Son of the Most High. In Matthew, they refer to him as the Son of God. In other words, they, they know exactly who that is. It reminds me of Philippians 2 10 through 11. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And whenever I teach that, I make sure to, for people to recognize. That that doesn't mean that all of them um, uh, reverence or, or love or glory in the fact that this is true about him. It just means that it's undeniable. It just means that on the awesome day of the Lord, when he comes to separate the wheat from the chaff, everybody will have to recognize who that is that has split the sky who that is that has come with the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel, it will be undeniable that that is Jesus Christ the Lord and this is tree of God. Some people will hate that, but they'll have to bow the knee and admit that. Which tells us, based on what we're seeing from the demons and from what we know from human nature, that it's possible, like the demons to be factually accurate in our theology and yet not accept that theology or respond accordingly to it. You can know true things about God and it not affect anything about you. That's the scary part of what we read in Matthew 7. Is that, that sometimes people do things because they have knowledge of the Bible or, or who God is or whatever, but they don't know Him. They may even know the formula of the gospel. But, it, but it's about this, this loving, intimate relationship where we depend on Him as Lord. Where we live by the fact that He is Lord. By, by the fact that we obey His commands because he is Lord. Or that we worship from a, from a pure heart. Because he is Lord. It, the fact that these demons know exactly who Jesus is. It doesn't change anything about what they desire. It doesn't change anything about who they are. Which is amazing to me, right? When you know who Jesus is. And you're not in awe of that? You don't love that? If you just see him as the law giver and not the, not the grace giver? I don't think you really see the glory of God. I don't think you want to. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, the wine's of a legion of devils admits his sovereignty. They cannot deny his absolute power to rule and to reign wherever over whoever. And we're, we're told that they cry out in all these Gospels that they, they, they give this utter shriek of terror. They, they beg, they beg him as we see here in verses 30 and 31. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. It's like my children recognize that I'm their father, and so when they want something, they beg for it. They earnestly desire it. So couple that with the torment that they're feeling, these demons. And, and, and their desire to continue to torment and to not be placed into chains like some of their fellow demons and to not be uh, cast into the lake of fire as, as is their end. They, there is this earnest imploring under the recognition of his lordship to continue in tormenting. So that's their response to his authority. And they cannot torment or inhabit apart from His sovereign authority. And Matthew here, in verse 32, records Jesus speaking only one word. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Matthew records this, only this one word because he's trying to demonstrate to his reader uh, that all Jesus needs to do to exercise power over the spiritual realm is just to say the word. They cannot move without his permission. Mark and Luke record that he asks the demon, the man, what his name is and implores him, them to come out. In those Gospels, they reveal in response to Jesus that they are legion, revealing that there are many spirits present, So this herd of pigs, which is told to us in uh, Mark and Luke to be 2,000, they are able to go out and inhabit that whole herd to cause them to do what they did. All that to say, Jesus gives them permission to do this, but why? He doesn't have to allow them to go to the pigs. He could send them wherever he wanted. He could destroy them with one word. Why does he allow them to go into this herd of pigs and to destroy the herd of pigs? Well, it could be two things or both together. Uh, Pigs were still seen as unclean according to the law. And therefore, it's unlawful for Jewish people to keep herds of pigs. Possibly then, these... People who were making a living off of these pigs were making a dishonest living by disobeying the commands of God. So, judgment. Also could demonstrate that His permission given to these devils is that form of judgment. Let me read to you how God will use wicked men or demons for His judgment. Judges 2, 11 through 15. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. I read you that one example out of many examples because... I want you to understand, again, that everything in the universe, everything in the world, every principality, every uh, nation, every kingdom is under the authority of God. And when he desires to bring judgment, he may very well use them to do such things for people. And they have to obey his orders. of God, isn't it? It's terrifying to realize that he may enact judgment at any time, at any place, in whatever means he sees necessary. And you say, man, he's kind of mean. Well, we don't understand then what the demons understand. That to transgress the holiness, to transgress the perfection, to transgress the grace and the goodness of God is of severe consequence, the utmost severe consequence. It says in verse 33 that the herdsmen fled, and going into the city they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So the subsequent report from this scene and from those present reveal that they aren't most concerned about the fear of the Lord, or what I just explained to you, that they're most concerned about what happened to the swine. It's kind of an afterthought, especially the word especially there in the ESV could be translated as well as, or also, kind of signifying the fact that what happened to the demon-possessed men was kind of a second concern to them. The fact that these people lost a herd of 2,000 pigs was the craziest thing they saw, apparently. And then in verse 34, Behold, and look at this word, All the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. All the city. The begging of the city, the whole city is the same act as those demons. They want Jesus to leave because His presence in power and authority is too disruptive to their way of life. A whole city is not in favor of the Lord Himself being present with them to cleanse wickedness in their midst. They're not for it. That just blows our mind, doesn't it? But all of us have existed in that way at one point or another. The question for for us then becomes, can we recognize when Jesus removes wickedness and be glad of His presence with us? Or are we so distraught over losing our life that we fail to gain it in Him? In other words, what are we not willing to give up if He asks us to? The answer should be nothing. If he is Lord and he calls for anything to be removed, so be it. A response to lordship is to recognize in complete and humble obedience his goodness and his goodness in doing what he decrees by the counsel of his own will. That is simply to say that every. Orders, everything that says, everything he ultimately is good. And if we are his people who recognize his lordship with gladness and with excitement and with joy and with peace and with trust, then we will find that to be the case with everything he commands, everything he asks, everything he. Takes. And humanity and your faith don't allow you to completely get there with every circumstance. Paul assures us that the glory that is to be revealed is not worth comparing to the things that we lose or suffer here on this earth. And if your faith is at least there, then it is present in submitting and obeying the Lordship of Christ. I don't understand why, Lord, you have done what you've done or why you've taken what you've taken. But you are my Lord and you are Good. and this be the desire of your will therefore it will work for good and that's one main thing I preach when we look at the birth narrative of Jesus and those uh, you know when they, when they slaughter when Herod slaughters uh, in chapter 2 uh, all those male children two years old and under And, and what is that? And in there, Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew wants you to remember Jeremiah 31 and to go there and to look and how it reveals to us the fact that the Lord will give back to those who have served Him and lost things according to His will he will restore to them even much more. And isn't that what Jesus teaches as well? But the issue with us becomes whether or not we're going to trust His Lordship to be good or not. The, the, I heard a, a, a debate last night. It, the debate didn't happen last night. I heard it last night. But a, but a question was asked uh, to a, a Christian said, uh, why, do you, why would you serve a God who is restrictive in the sense that even He's beginning creation and His relationship with His creation by telling them they can't have something? And that questioning alone, this question revealed, is, is part of the great lie to believe that God is restrictive. To believe that God is withholding good from us. To not believe that everything that he's doing and everything he is keeping us from is that as part of his goodwill towards us. The great and first lie in his creation was that God is not actually good. And if you're a Christian, you have faith to answer that in all circumstances. Even if they don't make sense. So the question simply becomes Is he Lord? You can, everybody, even the demons can say, Yeah, he is. But what does that mean to you? Is that a good thing? Is that a restrictive thing? Or is that a glad thing? Is that a hopeful thing? Can you rest in that? If you in your soul can answer in the affirmative that, yeah, I can rest in the fact that he's Lord. I can be glad in that. Then I think your spirit is testifying with us, spirit, that you are children of God. Therefore, heirs with Christ Jesus. But if you balk at that, if you hesitate to say that, that his lordship doesn't mean that all things will work together for our good and his glory if his glory is, need, is not even something that you're about or even desirous to see and to worship and to live for, then there's some more soul searching that needs to be done. But I also present this to you as the Bible does, that we, we don't, uh, by nature, like the fact that he is Lord. That's, that's not part of us, naturally. Naturally, His Lordship is restrictive, is distasteful, is sour to us. Psalm 14, one through 3 the fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Therefore, what hope is there? What hope is there? His lordship is not a pleasant thing to his creation since the fall of mankind. Let me give you some hope. Ephesians 2, 1-10 speaks the same thing as Psalm 14. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience in these demons and all who rebel against the lordship of Christ which is all men, naturally, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, here's the hope. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be looking at these demon-possessed men and say, man, you know, that's really not, that's unfortunate, to say the least. That's, I mean, why did this have to happen to them? That they were inhabited by these demons. Well, perhaps it is the judgment of God. Perhaps they were such wicked men in heart and mind that, that these things were, given permission to enter them and to cause the outcome of their lives. But also, did not the grace of God come to them? Were these demons not cast out of them? And what we're told in Mark and Luke is that when they came and saw this came out to Jesus, they saw the the two men clothed and in their right mind. And what happens to the men? They are commissioned in a way by Jesus to go and to tell that city that rejected Jesus about His grace towards them when they weren't even looking for it. He just entered their realm of existence and made them clean. When they existed in an unclean space with an unclean heart, with unclean spirits, and Jesus enters in and He makes them clean, and then they go and they tell this city that rejected Him all about that. The fact that they are speaking that is a testimony in and of itself to who Jesus is. At the end of uh, his comments on this section of Matthew, Spurgeon ends his comments with this prayer. He says, O Lord, I thank Thee that Thou didst not go away from me when I, in my unregenerate condition, wish Thee to let me alone. If God doesn't interrupt and disrupt our rebellion, We continue in that way. But praise be to him that he desires to show his his immeasurable, immeasurable riches in mercy and love toward us. that if he has not authority to make us clean, then we will not be clean. And is that the type of authority that you can submit to? I would say that's the most glorious authority to submit to. And I would encourage you to do so. And I would even pray as I do, that his lordship and goodness and glory would be revealed to some of you. That we may find you clothed and cleaned and in your right mind speaking about the glory of the one who saved you. Respond to him now and then we'll stand and sing.